0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. In Luke 22, uh, as we begin off, it starts off with uh, the plot to kill Jesus. So verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And since we're talking about we should remember these things, we should remember what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. So we all know bread requires yeast or some type of agent to make it rise. Um, And this feast was instituted, as we have many feasts, right? We have Thanksgiving because we want to remember uh, about America's history. We have Fourth of July because we want to remember Independence Day. This feast was unleavened bread, was when they were leaving Egypt. And the Passover, as it says there, was when the angel was literally passing over the city and would strike down the firstborn son of anybody who did not shed a lamb and put the blood over the dorsal. Um, Pharaoh, obviously not too happy that this happened, his uh, firstborn son died, sent out, said the Jews and the Israelites, just just get out of here, and they're not going to waste any time because they were suffering. So they left so fast over the night uh, that they didn't even have time for bread to rise. So the bread that they did have on their trip and journey out of Egypt Was unleavened. So that is what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is talking about, and the Passover of uh, uh, the angel over the city. So, verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And this is kind of what I'm talking about, where, yeah, that makes sense. We know that they were afraid of the people. And we could gloss over the sentence uh, very quickly. But you've got to keep in mind, these guys really hated Jesus. This guy was taking their place. They were the people of power. Everybody would come to them with sacrifices and advice on life. And here, some prophet is coming by, and literally thousands of people are are in awe of him, and they love him. So you would be afraid, too, if you wanted to basically execute this guy who is loved by tens of thousands, if not more. Um, And when you look into the Greek, when it says... For they fear the people. That word fear is phobeo, which is the same word that we use whenever you have a phobia or something. And this is an extreme fear. When you when you diagnose someone with a phobia of anything, it's it's not just a, you know, sometimes my skin crawls or whatnot, but this is a debilitating fear. These people sometimes cannot normally just go out into the world if they have agoraphobia and fear the outdoors or closed spaces, they will start shaking, they'll start sweating. It's a big deal. These priests phobiaed the people. They were terrified of how much they loved Jesus and what would happen if they even dared rise up against him. So it's important to know that these guys wanted him out, but they were terrified about how to do it. So verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So here they are, terrified, don't know what to do. And this, in a sick way, is their Christmas gift. Their Christmas gift. Uh, a guy came out of nowhere. He's part of the inner circle. Well, not the three, but part of the 12. And he's basically offering an out for them. I can give this guy to you. You don't have to fear the people. We can do it quiet away before anybody knows the wiser. And it's a tough concept, Judas. I always wonder... I mean, here we have the text saying that Satan entered Judas. Um, in, in another one of the Gospels, Jesus says it, it's better if he were never born. Um, but even after all the things that Judas does, we see that he he throws the money back. He's riddled with guilt. He eventually goes to commit suicide. So he's not without emotion. He's not just a, a psychopath that... Has zero empathy for others, but it's a strange—it's a strange idea that this man uh, was able to do the things that he did. Um, but <clears throat> we have—we have this that Judas entered or was entered by Satan. In another gospel, we see that Judas is also the treasurer of the group. Uh, John accused him of stealing from the money that they would have, so he wasn't terribly loved. Um, but when he comes down to it, we only have what the Bible says, and we can't speculate too much further into what his ideas were. But anyway, uh, he agreed to get some money in exchange for turning over Jesus. So, verse 5. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude, which is exactly what they wanted. They feared the people. So, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Um, And they're talking about the sacrifice there. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And we got to remember that the Jews at this time on Sabbath, they're not allowed to do any work. So there's kind of a time crush here where um, since we can't do anything in the next few hours, I need you to go now, find a place and just prepare it so that we have no work to do. So we're not working on the Sabbath. So verse 10, and he said to them, um, so verse 9, so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover and Jesus did so many miracles, and this is kind of a, I guess we could say it's a minor one. It's kind of unfair to say any miracle is minor. Um, but h- having the knowledge of exactly how something's going to happen, being sent forward, even though you have no idea what's going on, that's what these guys did. And it's, it's hard to say how can we do that in our lifetime, but there are people who will just go on faith to some location just based on a word, not knowing what the end result is. And, and that is kind of faith. Um, But these guys are probably super used to it, so they just went out knowing exactly what would happen. And, of course, as Jesus said, it did happen. Uh, In verse 14 here, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I found this really interesting that he had fervent desire. Um, different translations say it's kind of like a passion. It's something that he was looking forward to all of his life. Um, some of the farther, even down translations say it's kind of like a lust. So this is his entire life. He knew this day was coming. He, in his mind, he knows within the next day, uh, the events are going to turn terrible and that the sacrificial lamb, not as the Jews know it, but as he knows it, will actually be sacrificed. So if you think about it, all of humanity, for the thousands of years that existed, it's fallen. He knows there's a plan that has to happen. He told the Jews, you're going to have these feasts. You know you're going to be doing uh, the sacrificial lamb. There's a way you do things with the bread. There's a way you do things with the drink. But Jesus knew on this day the truth of, of everything would be made clear to them. And they had no idea up until this point. So for years and years and millennia, he's been looking forward to it. And here he is actually now sitting with them, and he says, I, I've been waiting for this day uh, with, with fervent desire. And it's right before he knows he's going to suffer. Verse 16, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. <clears throat> and just as a reminder, In the Greek, when it says thanks, that's Eucharist. That's what this is. So whenever there is Thanksgiving, it really is Eucharist. Like you could truly probably say happy Thanksgiving, happy Eucharist whenever we have that um, holiday. But Eucharist literally means to give thanks. And that's what we see Jesus doing all the time, giving thanks. Whenever he has the bread with the thousands, he gave thanks before he broke it. And again here, he was giving thanks. And he took the bread, gave thanks broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we all know that. There's the, the words, do this in remembrance of me, have been in our minds countless. We do this monthly. Some churches even do it uh, weekly. But the word remembrance is also really, really fascinating to me. In, in the Greek, it's anamnesis, which is the same root of amnesia. And what is amnesia, right? It's just a global uh, memory loss. It can last a few moments. It can last hours. Sometimes it can last days, weeks. and the worst cases, uh, it, it could go on further. Um, so we have amnesia, and then you have the negation of that, which is an. And, you, you know, you see many words where there is a, a negation like that. So, like, if somebody has, um, we all have blood, right? That would be emia. But if you have too little blood, then you are anemic anemia. Archie is a type of government rule. If you don't have rule in the government, then it's anarchy. If you've heard of people who like to have, you know, aesthetics, you know, the sensations and you know, touch, smell, and the way curtains are drawn. Um, so sensation is is that it's aesthetics. When you put somebody under surgery, you don't want them to sense anything, so you give them anesthetic. It's just another, you know, this is where it's going. There's even some cases of people I don't know if you've heard where uh, sin is like when you combine things. So synesthesia is when you combine the aesthetics. So for those super artistic people who you know can draw or they play the piano wonderfully, you ask them like, how is it that you you can play so well? And they're like, the notes that you hear are tasteful to me. So they can actually say, um, play this with more orange or there's not enough blue when you play these notes. And that's just aesthetics. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know. Words are fascinating. So here we have, do this in remembrance of me. So when he's asking you to remember this, his breaking of the body, his pouring of the blood, he's asking that you do it with, without the absolute opposite of amnesia. <coughs> do this in amnesia of me. And it's important because we, we forget all the time. Uh, I mean, for me, I'm taking a, a really important test in a, in a week. And there's a lot of stuff I'm supposed to know for it. And, you know, you take your practice questions over and over again. But things that you knew, that I knew from not even a few weeks ago, I'll forget and I'll answer the question incorrectly. And that's just human nature. Like, as we're getting older, forgetting where the keys are, forgetting things that's totally normal. Um, and, and we can see this in the Old Testament constantly, where God is telling the Israelites and the Jews... Uh, Do not forget me. Like, how have you forgotten the ways? You've forgotten the ways of the Lord. Even on the Exodus, when Moses is going up to the mountain, he comes back, and they already built an altar to a false god. Like, how quickly do you forget the miracles that just happened on the way out of Egypt? We forget. And that's why it's important to be reminded of everything. And that's what feasts are for, so we don't forget. And amnesia. And he knew. He asked us to do this in remembrance of him. So verse 20 Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And that word shed can be also interpreted as poured out, which we've heard, which is a nice, uh, you know, a nice metaphor, and idea. But it can also mean a gushing out or even a greedily uh, throwing out, which, if you think about it, that is what the crucifixion will be. They don't know that he's going to be crucified soon. But when his blood is shed, it's not going to be a nice, gentle pouring of a cup. It's going to be a very violent act against him. And, and you can go away from the Bible, away from any Christian sources or any religious sources, and, and look at the history of the Roman Empire and, and even the Assyrians and how they did their torture. These empires perfected torture. And for the Romans when they would do their crucifixions, they, they had an execution squad where they would have a centurion and a few foot soldiers whose purpose was just to carry out this execution in a very well-carried-out manner. And they're good at it. Nobody wants to say, like, oh, you're, you're good at executing people, but these guys had that job to do it. Um, and and they would, they would... We know the story. We know Jesus. Uh, later on, we'll see that he was blindfolded. And this is important to know because when you are striking someone, if somebody was going to hit you, if I was going to come rush at you, your body tenses up, you know something's coming, it's a natural reflex to prepare for the blow that's going to come. But imagine for people who watch football, when the quarterback gets blindsided, and in that word, he was blind to what actually hit him, that's when injuries can happen. If you're not paying attention and, and you walk off a stage or even six inches off of a curb that you didn't know was there, you could twist your ankle. If you don't know something's coming, uh, your body can't have a natural reflex to prepare, you will get hurt. So when you see these Romans doing their crucifixions, often they will blindfold their victims as they did Jesus. And that's when they would hit him because you have no idea when the blows are coming. So you can't tense or prepare for it. So the insult is even that greater. Uh, we know that he was flogged and they would often do this. Yeah, it's painful, but they would try to put the person into a state of shock so that the pain on the crucifixion would be even greater. Um, there's stories of which we see in the Bible, but in, in non-biblical uh, accounts where the Roman soldiers would also gamble clothing away, which we totally saw. It's, it's common that they would be crucified naked and left up there to die. So there's not actually much archaeological evidence that we have of people uh, who we saw were crucified. And the reason is because they were left on there to rot and die that there, there was looking through some, and there was one that was buried, and they did find the um, the nail pierced through the foot, and it's kind of as if the feet were not uh, facing down, but splayed kind of like uh, sideways so that they can stand. And there was another account that they were actually had two different pedestals that they could stand on. Uh, and the point of that was because in a state of shock, as you were bleeding out... Um, the ways that you would die would either be because you asphyxiate yourself, because one of the ways was that they would light a fire underneath the cross so that you would breathe the smoke and eventually die of asphyxiation. Um, if you were taking too long, because some of these crucifixions could last days and days and days, they would get sick of it and they would just break your legs so you couldn't push yourself up to breathe anymore. Or, as we have in Jesus' case, you can get a spear and just pierce the organs so that you just bleed internally point being, these Roman soldiers perfected crucifixion. And it was meant to be painful. It was meant to be gruesome. They were good at it. And, and that's the reason why if you ever have excruciating pain, it, it is excruciating. It is out of the cross type pain. It's excruciating. There's not much that can really be compared against it. <clears throat> so, he he knew this. They did not yet But this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And it's going to be a terrible shedding. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And we see in the other gospel where he says, even to the point that it's better if this guy wasn't even born. Which is a harsh statement, but it's the truth. And naturally, they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. And then I was thinking also, we, we can read through this uh, chapter in, in an hour. like It's not going to take too long, even if we dive you know, super deep into it. But when they were there having dinner and having conversations, we got to understand this probably was them hanging out, having, what, several hours' worth of conversation. Who knows what the small talk was? We have the big bullet points here. And the idea that it says um, they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. It's, it's an investigation when you look in a, a different translation. They, they were probably going nuts trying to figure out who could do such a thing. Verse 24. Um, as, as if we couldn't even forget, here Jesus is with them trying to explain to them what's going to happen in the next few hours and the next few days and how quick these guys are to forget that they can't even remember they're already arguing about power and who's going to be the greatest and as time goes on. So verse 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And this is like in small quotes, which is, it's no different now. I, I mean, every government, is in control of, you know, our daily lives, and we, we give them taxes, we give them money, and they give us a portion back, which, and then they call us, and they're the benefactors, right? They're giving us all these services, but here they are taking a ton of money in the first place, and it's no different back in their day. Um, they exercise authority over them and are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves for who is greater he who sits at the table or he who serves is it not he who sits at the table yet i am among you as the one who serves and this concept is something we've heard many times but it's it's important um, and there are times where even i i don't want to i don't want to be a servant at, like even and this is kind of cheesy, I guess, but this morning we were coming here to church and uh, it was a little colder, I guess, for a Californian taste, but we did not bring her sweater. So she uh, wanted her sweater. I was like, oh, that's fine. Like, it's, it's half an hour before church starts. Go ahead and go grab it. She's like, oh, no, you go grab it. And it's like, <laughs> like, in my mind, she's the one who's cold, but obviously, and this is not like, oh, you know, such sacrifice that I need to go get a sweater, but I shouldn't have to even question these things for my wife or other people at all. It should just be the heart of a servant that's constantly there, ready to do stuff for others, be they someone you love very much or not. It's a struggle that I'm sure we all have, but it's important. And it's, it's a teaching that God gave to us that Jesus gave literally on the day before he was dying. and And whatever he says in his last moments have to carry some weight. And this is the one he said, be a servant. If that's what he said before he was dying, I imagine it has some elevated value. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Um, whenever you see a name repeated twice, usually something huge happens right after, because it doesn't happen too often in the Bible where you see things repeated twice. Um, and we've seen it a little bit with Pastor Donnie, as he's going through Genesis. So, when, or I guess, when, um, We're going to get there soon. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And this is right before he's about to sacrifice his son and gives him a ram instead. He says, Jacob, Jacob, right before uh, he learns that Joseph never really was dead, but he's actually a ruler in Egypt commanding all of their fortunes. He says, Moses, Moses, when Moses is approaching the burning bush. He says, Samuel, Samuel. When he was just a boy in the tabernacle hearing in a time where God was not speaking to these people, he heard them literally. We know that he also said it to Martha when he said, Martha, Martha, why are you worrying about such simple things? Like, I'm not going to be here for a long time. Just focus on the time that we have together. And then in, in later times, you can do that other stuff. And then here we have Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And that word sift in Greek uh, is also, it could also mean like a sieve. So, and and asked is um, kind of generous in this uh, interpretation here. When you go to the Greek, it's demanding, as if for a trial. So Satan literally was demanding, I want Peter, and I want to put him through a sieve. I want to strain him. I want to put him until there's nothing left, as if you would strain something out of a pulp. And there's only pulp that remains he demanded to be able to do that to Peter, which is reminiscent kind of, of the conversation that he had with Job, with God about Job. Not as violent, because that was more of a conversation, and God knew that Job was very faithful, and he would turn out just okay and said, that's fine, go ahead and do whatever troubles you want, uh, but don't harm his body. In this case, Satan literally was demanding of God that you give me Peter, that I might put him through trial and just leave him as a pulp. And interestingly enough, when he says this in verse 32, he says, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So here we have Satan asking, demanding, I want Peter, and I want to I mess him up really good. And Jesus didn't say, I prayed so that you don't have to suffer, or I prayed so that you can get by some other way. He prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. So the suffering and the trial is going to happen, but his concern, Jesus' concern, was that your faith would not fail and that when you come back to me, implying you might might suffer, you will suffer, you might mess up, but you will return. And when you do, you're going to be a stronger person for it. And because of that, I need you to strengthen your brethren. And that word "brethren," I really love you know language in Greek, so I'm, I'm gonna have to do this all the time. But it's it means womb, like somebody of the same womb. So when Jesus says strengthen your brethren, and we talk to each other, and we're brothers and sisters, right? We're brothers and sisters of the Lord. He he meant it literally. Uh, strengthen the people who are of the same womb as you, and we're all adopted into the same family. We're all brothers and sisters, and that's how Jesus saw us, as brothers and sisters. So that's what he told them to do. In verse 33, he says, uh, But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And we know Peter's a a hothead, and he'll say these things. Uh, Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. And we know how that's going to play out. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And and he's talking about way back when, when he sent them on their uh, in twos as missionaries to go out. And they said, no, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, end quote, for the things concerning me have an end. So you can take this a few different ways. I mean, it's, it doesn't, if you take it at face value and don't dig at all, it kind of sounds like, uh, is Jesus telling us that we should buy weapons and, and be ready uh, for the future and prepare? It, it's not really... That, though, he has in mind what they don't. He knows that he's not going to be there with them. When he sent them out in twos, he was with them, and they they had lack of nothing. But he knows that he's going to be leaving soon. So he's basically telling them, yeah, it was nice before. I prepared for you. I had things done well. But no, it's going to be a lot harder in the future. I'm not going to be physically here with you. So he's not saying buy weapons and whatnot. You know, he's just implying to them it's going to be difficult as you go forward. There are going to be people who are going to pull you aside. They're going to put you in the court systems. They're going to put you on trial. They're going to beat you. They're going to afflict you. It's going to be a difficult path up ahead. But we know the disciples, and you know, if we were in their shoes too, we wouldn't be thinking any differently. Um, they said in verse thirty-eight, "Look, Lord, here are two swords," and he said to them, "It is enough." But from the commentaries that I'm seeing, it's basically Jesus saying, "You don't get it yet." Uh, that's that's not really what he was talking about. He's not literally talking about you need to get some swords and, and travel on your ways. It's kind of like when he was uh, mentioning how to the disciples, "Be very afraid or be wary of the leavened, of the bread of uh, the Pharisees." And this was after God or Jesus gave uh, he multiplied bread. But there was no bread with them at that moment. So they started thinking literally, oh, man, is he upset that we don't have any bread? Or is he really warning us about the bread that the Pharisees may have? But it had nothing to do with bread at all. It was a metaphor. The point was be, a, be wary of their teachings. But they took it literally. And just in this situation here, they took it literally that they would need swords for the future. But that wasn't what was he, that's not what he was talking about. And we'll see soon. In verse 39... Coming out, he went to the mountain of olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And I was thinking this it's interesting that with Peter, when Peter, uh, when Satan demanded to have Peter, he didn't pray for Peter's way to escape punishment or pain just for his faith. But then you read this, and it seems like he wants a way out, uh, and it, it seems selfish, but that's not at all what he's talking about. If you think about the whole reason why Jesus is here in the first place, he wants to save mankind. And when we explain to others, that there's literally only one way for mankind to be saved. It has to be by the death of Jesus, and then you have to accept that gift. It's it's almost insulting. It's an, it's offensive to other people who want to believe that there's multiple ways. There's multiple paths. You can have your own religious system, your own beliefs. But to say that there's only one way, it does sound offensive. So it's very possible. And some commentators were saying that it's it's not that he. Wanted to escape uh, necessarily the suffering, and I'm sure who wants to face that. But why is it, is there any other way where where more people can be saved? Is a possible interpretation, because he wants no one to perish, which I thought was an interesting thought that they put there. Um, Verse 43 Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And we see that as, I mean, we'd like to believe that, you know, we're always praying as fervent as possible. And and we're always as strong in our faith as possible. But, But we know that when things get rough, when illness or sickness is upon us, or things, maybe even death is imminent in a family member, we pray more intensely. We pray more fervently. And and Jesus did the exact same thing. So we can see that there's nothing wrong with doing that. If if times are getting tough, of course you should turn to the Lord. Jesus here was in agony, and he prayed even more earnestly for it. And it says here that his sweat became like great drops of blood to the bud falling down to the ground. Interestingly enough, there is an extremely rare medical condition called uh, hematohydrosis. And and hematology is the study of blood. Hematol, it just means blood. Hydrosis is like when you hydrate. That's water, right? Get hydrated. So hematohydrosis is blood like water. And if you look into research, usually you want hundreds of people involved in research, thousands of people. So you can see, like, how does this medicine work? How does this disease play out? But there are diseases that are so extremely rare that you just can't really do research on it. So they call these case reports because you have one case here, a few cases there. So for hematohydrosis, there are case reports that this uh, happens. And um, and they're in in the journals. And usually um, it's prompted by acute fear and intense mental uh of what's about to come. So they're... There was a case of uh, a person who was condemned to execution who had this hematohydrosis because he was so fearing the execution he was about to get. There was another case of this lady who was so afraid of being raped that she had hematohydrosis. There was another one who was so afraid of sailing and the fear of it that he had this case of hematohydrosis. Point being, acute fear, like unbelievable knowledge of what can come this one of the examples was of an execution it is possible for this to happen and in Jesus case he knew exactly what he would face with the Romans and I mean he knows history he knows how cruel humanity can be and he knew that he was going to go through this himself so why not that he he would be in such agony and pray more earnestly when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Which is an interesting thing to sleep from sorrow. But I mean, I'm not going to say to you that I, I know what it's like to, to be super depressed or I've had uh, extreme trouble in my life. But I have been sad. I have been very sad at times. And, and I remember in, in those times, I remember thinking that sleep your brain is just off. It's kind of like an escape of sorts. You don't have to think about you know, somebody who has cancer, somebody who's dying, when you're sleeping. Nothing matters when you're sleeping, because it's just all blank. Which is interesting to me, too, for when you look at depression, and you have to diagnose depression in someone, there's a few criteria that have to be hit. And one of the ones that you see often is uh, extended periods of sleep. So usually we'll get, what, seven, eight hours? but these guys might be going 12, 13, 14, 15. They just sleep a lot. And it kind of makes sense. If you're depressed, if something's bothering you in in life so much, and you just want to avoid it, sleep would be an option. Your mind is blank at that point, unless you have vivid dreams, but these disciples were sleeping from sorrow. And I I wonder if at this point they knew what was coming, and they were so terrified and sad that they hadn't no other option here, but to get rid of it by sleeping. Regardless, Jesus comes back to him and says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. Which is literally what he just told them a few sentences ago. But did they forget? (laughs) On the same night they forgot? It's just (coughs) mind-boggling. But it's something that we should know for ourselves too, to not forget to always be reminded with these, whether it's a festival, a monthly uh, Eucharist thing, to not forget. Verse 47, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? which is the absolute worst types of betrayal. And when you think of betrayal, there's always a few names that come to mind. And Judas is by far the worst. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. In American history, the worst we have, I would say probably would be like a Benedict Arnold, who at the very beginning of our nation's birth, this guy was the commander of West Point, but he was going to turn it over to the British uh, as the, the Revolutionary War was going on. That's treason, that's an, a huge betrayal, and there's a reason why in almost every nation on Earth, treason is punishable by death. It's just one of the most reviled things a person can do. Um, in every culture, I'm sure they have their own traitors. In, in the Mexican culture, there is a lady called Malinche. So whenever you do something that's betrayal to someone, you say, like, you're, you're like a Malinche, or like for Americans to be like, you're a Benedict Arnold. Malinche was the girl who helped the uh, conquistadors translate between the empires, and eventually to the downfall of the Mayan and Aztec empires. So whenever Mexicans think of betrayal, they think Malinche. Americans think Benedict Arnold, but everybody can agree the worst traitor of all was Judas, and that's why you don't forget these, uh, these betrayers. Another huge one, um, if I said the words atu brute, and you would think Julius Caesar betrayed by Brutus, his own friend, when he was being stabbed... Traitors just stick with us, and the way they do it, Judas with the kiss is is just reviled. When those randoms saw what was going on, going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I wonder who that was. Um, And this, to be fair, Jesus did tell them about swords just recently, so that's probably fresh in their mind, and they're probably thinking, well, this is what he was talking about. Things are going to get rough, and we have to start striking out. But again, they took it super literal, and that's not at all what he was talking about as a metaphor. <clears throat> but Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour. And the power of darkness. And that's literally the point at which humanity pretty much changes. This is where Satan has his glory day, where he basically has control and probably felt the highest he ever did. He knows things are in his favor and and Jesus is going to die soon. Moving on, verse 54. Having arrested him, they laid him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl said, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently on him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely, this fellow also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And it's not like in the movies where this happens back to back to back to back. Like we were just told that there was an hour difference between the second and third one. And again, did he forget what Jesus said, not even recently, that before the crow uh, you know, says, you will betray me three times? So who knows what was going on in his mind? He was just trying to follow Jesus. I'm sure he was earnest in his statement that he would you know, follow him to prison, follow him to death, but here he is denying him. But right after Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times where you're with other people, and you don't have to say anything. Just just the look on their face, you can get untold emotion from it. It could be disappointment. It could be uh, betrayal in this case. And I'm sure that's happened to everybody here, where it was just the look on that person's face was enough to just soul crush you. I remember one of my most vivid memories was when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure I was under 10, but I was was in the backseat of the car, and my mom was in the front seat, and I told her for who knows what crazy reason. I think I was upset. Maybe I don't want candy or something. Who knows? But I told her, I hate you which is just a, who knows, I mean, I'm mean, i not even sure kids fully understand the, the depth of emotions, but mom, my mom, I said this to her, and I remember seeing her in, in the mirror, and her face was just like, oh my gosh, like soul crushing, like seeing what I'm doing to her, and she started crying quietly, was terrible, like if you can imagine Peter doing this, after denying him three times, and seeing Jesus' face, not like I told you so, Or I told you this would happen. But more like a, I knew it would happen. It's okay. Like, I still love you. And that probably just crushed him. And and that's what we see here. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. And I can imagine how bitter that would have been. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, just like how the Romans are apt to do so that you can't prepare... They struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. And remember, this is, it says, yeah, they beat him, but we know that he was beat to the point of non-recognition, which is just insane if you see somebody go through that much trauma. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer. Answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, "What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth." And again, we can just read this and gloss over how quickly. But this was the Sabbath, and they're not allowed to do any work. That's why we had to wait until it was day for the Pharisees to bring them into the courtroom and whatnot. But while all this is happening, we have one or two verses of of Jesus with the uh, centurions and the Romans, which is an entire night of punishment. So, again, it's important to remember that this isn't just like he was beat a few times, his face was slapped. This was centurions trained in the art of execution alone with Jesus for at least the first night. It's, it's just unimaginable that what, what suffering he went through. And Jesus knew exactly what it was, hence the intense agony and the praying more earnestly. So the whole point of this is that we shouldn't forget well, you know, we should do this in remembrance of God. It should be literally the opposite of amnesia. But we're human. We The Jews have done it a billion times, or they just forgot over and over and over again. And we're no different. We constantly forget. There's a reason why we're told in the New Testament, like, it's good to come together and fellowship with others. Um, it's important to keep renewing your mind daily. Otherwise, you'll forget these things. Um... So comparing the the bread, the leavened, uh, this isn't unleavened bread per se, but it's a concept that's used many times in the New Testament. Also how when you're making bread, you only need a little bit of yeast in order to make the bread grow. But that can count also as uh, if you have sin, it only takes a little tiny bit to kind of creep in before it kind of grows beyond proportion. So it's important to always be vigilant. It's important to always remember that it doesn't take much for us to fail. Um, Peter, one of the greatest you know guys of the apostle, he himself fa- failed. He himself betrayed Jesus. Not that we're stronger than Peter, but but we're just like him that we're human. We're, we're gonna fail. We're gonna betray people. We're gonna crush people's uh, that we love their soul. But it's important that we come back from that because Jesus prayed for him that his faith might be kept and that when we do come back from whatever trials that we face that we can strengthen those around us. Um, so you've got to remember don't have or uh, well, we should have these feasts and things to remember Jesus' sacrifice. We <coughs> should always remember that it's important to be servants because that's what he told us to do right before he was going to go to his death. And it's also important here um, that even in the worst of times, we might fall asleep when something amazing, amazingly terrible is going on. It's just human nature. I'm just trying to impress upon us that we're not that strong. We're going to fail. We're going to fall asleep when it's really important not to. But um, we always have Jesus on our side, praying on our behalf, so this is all not just doom and gloom. It's uh, important that we just remember that. Um, and another thing, too, it's important to remember that he was tempted in many of the ways that we were, so that we're not just going about life and nobody understands. That's actually one of the things that we often tell patients who come in very shy or ashamed of whatever you know, disease they have. More often than not, it's something that they think uh, you know, I'm the only person in the world who's suffering. You know, nobody else knows what it is, but it's actually really common. And when you tell patients, like, this is actually really common, it's, it has a generalizing effect where it's like, oh, you know, there's others like me. There's others out there, and I'm not alone. You know, others have gone through this and gotten better, and I can do the same. And that's the whole thing that we're trying to tell you. Like, it's okay, you know, you, you won't be alone through this. Uh, like, one of the most shocking ones which I didn't know until you know going to school, was up to 25% of pregnancies will fail within the first trimester. And miscarriages is such a heart-wrenching thing, and nobody wants, you know, you want to keep it private, keep it to yourself. But the idea of knowing that this is common, this is actually something that the body does pretty often, um, and the vast majority of the time it's because that there was some type of genetic something to it, that the body uh, let the miscarriage happen. It's just important to remind people you're not alone. It's okay. Um, and that there is support out there. So that's what I have for you today. Just remember as much as you can. Know that we are going to forget things. It's okay. But remember that we do have Jesus as our high priest on, on our behalf, praying for us to God the Father. We have each other it's important that we come to fellowship like this to, to the Wednesdays, which uh, I'll certainly try to come once I finish that crazy exam that I have coming up. <clears throat> um, but that's pretty much it.